Welcome to the West Bank Bible Church podcast. This morning I'm going to cover the doctrine of canonicity. You'll find a bit of similarity between this doctrine and the doctrine of the authenticity of the Bible. But certainly a little repetition does not hurt. So what is history and how do we get it? Ancient records record, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> ancient written records are compared and archaeological discoveries are analyzed and studied vis-a-vis the written, written records of antiquity. To determine what is history versus fiction, the following tests are used for written records, for example, oldest documents take precedence, that is, those nearest the event, the number of documents available, the number of mistakes in the various manuscripts, and the substance of the errors, and then the time interval between the event and the document. In summary, we could say various external evidences, such as established contemporary events, rulers, names of cities, civilizations known to exist at the time, and archaeological records are all part and parcel, and used, of course, in total, for conclusions with reference to the uh, canonicity of a given document. In other words, is it part of the canon of Scripture or not part of the canon of Scripture? Although the Bible is not a history book, the historical facts found in the Bible are remarkably accurate. The Old Testament was written over a long period of time, as you'll remember from our Podcasts entitled uh, "The Doctrine of the uh, the uh, Authenticity of the Bible." So it's really a miracle when you consider it was written over such a long period of time. That is, fourteen hundred and fifty BC to circa four fifty BC. All right, the sub. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament authorized by Ptolemy, one of the five general officers surviving Alexander the Great. Ptolemy ruled what we know today as Egypt. A writer who called himself Aristias says that when Ptolemy Philadelphus was engaged in the formation of the Alexandrian Library and Circa 250, he was advised by Demetrius Phalerius to procure a Hebrew translation of the sacred books of the Jews. The king, accordingly, as a preliminary to asking for the Hebrew manuscripts, purchased the freedom of more than 100,000 Jewish captives, and then he sent a deputation of which, by the way, Aristias himself was one of those members. He sent them to Eliezer, who was the high priest, to request a copy of the Old Testament. He also asked and acquired <clears throat> the services of 72 interpreters, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. After the arrival of the translators and a magnificent reception by the king, they are said to have been conducted to an island by Demetrius, who reduced to writing that to which they had agreed. Work began immediately on what would later be called the Septuagint. 
It is generally believed the Greek rendering of the Old Testament took 72 days. Uh, we think that's perhaps the Pentateuch that took that long, but nonetheless, some say the entire effort, I rather yield to just the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then they went on and worked and of course didn't complete the Old Testament in its entirety until sometime much later, like, you know, maybe 283 or so BC. All of these dates are, of course, circa. Alright, the translators are then said to have received from the king a most abundant reward for their work. And the Jews are stated to have asked permission to take copies of their work. That is to say, the version of what we call the Septuagint. Now, the New Testament was written over a not-so-long period of circa 4 B.C. to circa A.D. 96, uh, an intertestamental period in between the Old and New Testament of some 400 years followed, that is to say, between completion of the book of Malachi and, let's just say, the birth of Christ or even the birth of John the Baptist. Or we could say what we would like say most often, the book of Malachi. So Malachi uh, to Matthew, there was about a 400 year period. Now we have a great deal of information about what took place in this intertestable 400 year period in what is known as the, the first and second Maccabee, which is you can find in the Catholic Bible. And uh, it's a uh, uh, actually an Old Testament book, but we could say an interim period book. The events described by the Maccabees, like the war between the Seleucids and Ptolemy, and etc. Alright, uh, there was also uh, a great deal of writing. Four books, actually. It's very thick. I have a copy of it in the four books of, of uh, Josephus. They described this same period. But the books of Maccabee, Maccabee, remember me, excuse me, Maccabee uh, means the hammer. They're not considered as canonical, that is to say they are often referred to as apocrypha. Well, Bible teachers know the events taking place in the intertestamental period from not only the apocrypha, but they also find records of these events described prophetically by Daniel, particularly in Daniel chapters 2, 4, 7, and 8. Uh, they, dis- they allude to many of the events taking place in the interim period. I hope to show later how there is a remarkable coalescence between history and prophecy. This will all be developed uh, in this doctrine ultimately, hopefully. All right, let's uh, first review the Old Testament and how it compares with ancient history. Much of this we had talked about in our doctrine of authenticity. Well, until the recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the oldest extant Hebrew manuscripts, our oldest Old Testament manuscript was dated A.D. 900. Keep in mind, a manuscript as used in this doctrine may only be a small portion of an entire book inscribed on a vellum, a parchment, or sole, or papyri. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls contains parts of several Old Testament books, and the scrolls date back to the first century B.C. Now, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is most important, in uh, somewhere between 1947 and 1954, there was an approximate gap of some 1,300 years between the event and the oldest Old Testament manuscripts. Now, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls helps us out a lot here because they close that uh, time gap, but more of that as we proceed. The Old Testament being completed in about 425 B.C. and the oldest copy being 900 A.D., thus, that's where we get this 1,325-year hiatus. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a number of Old Testament manuscripts were found which were dated before the time of Christ. And when experts compared what we formerly had versus the newly discovered scrolls, there were remarkably only a few minor errors and most involved only punctuation. More concerning this comparison will be provided later. The Christian, however, can now take the Old Testament and say without fear, this is the Word of God. The Word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation. And as we're going to see later, the New Testament has been studied and experts determined its accuracy is just a little short of miraculous. The Bible takes a back seat to no other document when objectively compared. All the more remarkable is the fact that more than 40 men in three languages spanning 60 generations and 1,600 years have written the Bible from three different continents. Now that's pretty astonishing. We will look at the accuracy factor of the numerous copies in greater detail later, but now it suffices to simply state that the accuracy of the Bible is, again, as noted earlier, nothing short of phenomenal. To understand the accuracy of the Old Testament copies, it is necessary to examine the extreme care in which copyists translated the Old Testament from year to year, from many and varied manuscripts. Now, the Talmudists, who uh, have, have written Actually, between the period A.D. 100 to 500, they spent a great deal of time cataloging Hebrew civil and canonical law. And uh, they had quite an intricate system for describing synagogue scrolls. Example, each copy had to be written on a skin of animal classified as clean. The skin had to be prepared in a special way. Every skin had to contain a certain number of columns. The length of each column had to extend over at least 48, but no more than 60 lines. Each line had to have at least 30 letters. The ink must be black and prepared according to a certain recipe. No word or letter could be written from memory. Between every consonant, the hair of a space or thread must intervene. Between every book, there must be three lines. The copyist must sit in full Jewish dress. And before beginning, the copyist must take a bath. Before writing the name of God, he must use a new pen dipped in a new bottle of ink. So the existence of the many ancient copies of the scripture is even more remarkable 
given the repeated persecutions to the Jews and the large-scale destruction of their property. And I give that would certainly include their books, their manuscripts, etc. So that any remain at all is a tribute to God's intervention in what I would classify as a miracle. This is especially evident given the Philistine, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Turkish, German, Spanish, and Russian pogroms. The Masorites, who were operating during the period A.D. 500 to 900, accepted the laborious job of editing the text and standardizing it. They added vowel points under the consonants to help with pronunciation. They were well-disciplined and treated the text with the greatest imaginable reverence and devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal error. They counted the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book, pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch and the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible, and made even more detailed calculations to verify accuracy. They counted everything countable. Then they came up with a system of mnemonics by which the various totals might be readily remembered. I think now we're ready for a review of what is often called the canon of Scripture or, as we sometimes call everything in our church, the doctrine of canonicity. A tremendous mass of literature appeared in the first three or four centuries, all of which claimed to be authoritative and inspired. Something had to be done to determine which books were in and which books were out. That is to say, what was canon and what wasn't canon. Therefore, there was little, if any, controversy regarding the content of the New Testament. Little controversy. Most of the controversy only related to the Old Testament. The early church fathers agreed upon five criteria to determine what books were to be included. These uh, were, for example, was the book of divine origin. That is to say, does the book itself purport to be divinely inspired? Was its claim to inspiration adequately sustained by the awareness of the writer? He must, must be aware that this was indeed a sacred scripture. Documentation by quotation, for example. The New Testament contains numerous quotations from the Old Testament made by not only Jesus Christ, but by virtually every writer of scripture. The law of public or official action, as in the Old Testament, a priest, a prophet, a king, or in the New Testament, our Lord, did he read from it? Did he read from it in public? External evidence was used in the sense that the Masoretic copies only preserved for us that which all of Israel seemed to know was the canon. Now from the Grolier Encyclopedia in the World Book, we find an, un- an unbiased description of what is known as the Pseudopedagrapha and the Apocrypha. And I'm going to read from the Grolier and then the World Book. First, the Grolier. Pseudepitagrapha. The word pseudepitagrapha, meaning books with false titles, refers to books similar in type to those of the Bible, whose authors gave them the names of persons of a much earlier period in order to enhance their authority. The best known are Three and Four Edris and the Prayer of Manassas, which are included in the Apocrypha. The term is applied to many Jewish and Jewish Christian books written in the period 200 B.C. to A.D. 200. 
Fragments of the Damascus document have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The pseudepigrapha are important for they throw light on Judaism and early Christianity. There is no evidence, internal or external, of divine authorship or inspiration. That is to say, canonicity claimed. It just wasn't there. All right, continuing to quote now, Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are books of the Old Testament included in Roman and Orthodox Catholic Bibles as deuterocanonical, meaning added to the earlier canon, but excluded from the Hebrew Bible and from most Protestant Bibles. It is not certain why the term apocrypha, meaning hidden things, was originally applied to them, but they were considered less, definitely less authoritative than the other biblical books because of the relatively late origin, 300 B.C. to 100 A.D. All right, now let's take a look at what the world book is to say. Quoting now, the apocrypha includes the first and second books of Edras, Tobit, additions to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, Judith, Baruch, the song of the three children, Susanna, and the elders, Bel, and the dragon, the prayer of Manassas, and the first and second books of Maccabees. All right, the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha are important sources for Jewish history and religious development in the first and second centuries B.C. All right, there are many other pseudepigraphal books, such as the Book of Mormons and the devotional prayer books of the Christian Science denomination, which are accepted by some as biblical. There are other, also other, Orthodox Catholic books uh, accepted in their faith as supplemental to the Bible, although rejected by the Roman Catholic Church. All right, uh, continuing on. If you consider the copies available, age and accuracy of the documents, it becomes quite obvious that we have the inspired word of God preserved for us and need no extra biblical revelation. So, so much for the quote that we have uh, and my comment with reference to uh, the need, no need, for extra biblical revelation given what we have. Now, Flavius Josephus, who we mentioned earlier in our other study of the authenticity of the Bible, Josephus was an he, Josephus was an unbeliever who, in Contra Apion, describes the sacred books of the Jew. For you see, canonicity was an acceptable part of Jewish history. Not surprisingly, he tells us, and he doesn't have an axe to grind that the Old Testament is the canon and has no need for additional pseudepedagraphia. Colonel R.B. Thame, former pastor of the, of the uh, Baraka Bible Church, in his book entitled Canonicity, writes concerning the Apocrypha under the heading, quoting, The Rejection of the Apocrypha. Now I'm going to quote from the Colonel. The Apocrypha was never in the Hebrew canon. Every card indexing of the canon of Scripture in the ancient world listed only the Old Testament, but it excluded the Apocrypha. Neither Jesus Christ nor any of the New Testament writers ever quoted from the Apocrypha. Never even once. Josephus expressly excluded them from his list of sacred scripture in his books. Uh, he explained that these books were excluded from the canon because they were spurious. 
No mention of the Apocrypha was made in any catalog of canonical books in the first four centuries A.D. It was not until the fifth century A.D. that a well-known organization slipped them into the catalog. These apocryphal books were never asserted to be divinely inspired or to possess divine authority in their contents. No prophets were connected with these writings. Each Old Testament book was written by a man who was a prophet either by office or by guilt or both. The Apocrypha contained many historical, geographical, and chronological errors. They so distorted and contradicted the Old Testament narrative that in order to accept the Apocrypha, one had to reject the Old Testament. The Apocrypha teaches doctrines, upholds practices which are contrary to the canon of scriptures. Documentation regarding the false doctrines found in the Apocrypha are as follows. Now I'm continuing to quote from the colonel. Prayers and offerings for the dead. In 2 Maccabee 12, 41-46, not only are prayers offered for the dead, but monetary offerings are brought on their behalf and even recommended. Now, I'm quoting from the Douay Version, he says. The Douay Version of the Old Testament, which is a revised version of the Vulgate. It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, but that they may be loosed, that is the nature of the prayer, continuing to quote now, that they may be loosed from sin. Suicide is justified in 2 Maccabee 14, 41-46. It deals, by the way, with the revolt against the Syrians, and that was led by the Maccabean brothers. The Apocrypha justifies this suicide and calls it a noble death. Continuing now to quote from the colonel, Atonement and salvation by almsgiving. At least two of the books of the Apocrypha state that sins may be atoned for and salvation may be obtained by giving large donations. Tobit 4, verse 11, quote, For alms deliver from all sin and from death and will not suffer the soul to go into darkness. Cruelty to slaves is justified in Ecclesiasticus 33, 25-29. We read that the best way to treat a slave is to pile work on him and that if need be, cruelty to slavery is fully justified. And then there's the doctrine of emanations. The colonel says this is a cosmological concept characteristic of Gnosticism. It explains the world as an oil outflowing from one absolute source, but never uses the word God. The pre-existence of souls is also mentioned, which claims that the soul as well as the body is produced in procreation. We know that ultimately only God can give soul life. Other fallacies in the Apocrypha. Hatred of Samaritans. Lying is sanctioned in certain cases. Incantations are encouraged, as is assassination. Seven angels are said to have the power of intercession. Purgatory is established as a place. End quote. Now, interestingly, neither the Roman or Greek Orthodox Church accepts all of the theology of the Apocrypha, but rather they have chosen to pick and choose and have therefore no absolute standard or canon to go by. Much of that taught in the Apocrypha is vehemently opposed to sound Catholic teaching, and many of the early church fathers, without question, they considered the Apocrypha as questionable and not to be considered as equal with the Bible. 
Right, there has been far less controversy with reference to what represents the New Testament. So let's see what we can do there. Criteria for New Testament canonicity, I think we can summarize it as follows. First of all, apostolicity. Every book must be written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. Reception by the early local churches are as being authentic. Consistency. Doctrines in the book must be consistent with extant Christian teaching. And each book must give either internal or external evidence of divine inspiration. Now, how did they resolve all the problems that uh, might come up, as you might imagine, with reference to authenticity? Well, there were councils where the leaders of the church would get together and kick around this subject of, is it part of the canon or isn't it? And I might as well list them for you. Uh, We're not going to go into the minutes of those meetings, etc., but there was the Council of Laodicea. 336 A.D., the Council of Damascus, 382 A.D., the Council of Carthage, 397 A.D., the Council of Hippo, 419 A.D. Now, the Council of Laodicea recognized and accepted all books of the New Testament except the book of the Revelation. However, the next three councils included the book of Revelation into the canon. So the question of canonicity never came up again until the rise of liberalism in the 19th century, which led to our 20th century modernism. All right, a very interesting uh, study here of how did we get the King James Bible. All right, it is net, remember, we don't remember the date, and we'll get into that later on, which is, of course, it was finished in roughly 1611, so it's quite old. But uh, how they how we got it is interesting is an interesting story of and to itself. All right, it is necessary that we understand some of the background connected with the reign of King James the First, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England, uh, and uh, the fact that Elizabeth had a beautiful cousin, Mary Stuart who had returned from France in 1561 to take her rightful place as Queen of the Scots. Well, Scotland was in a state of turbulence. The clans fomented discontent. You may remember that from the movie Mel Gibson made. Uh, The new faith preached by John Knox, Presbyterian. He founded the Presbyterian Church. John Knox swept across the chilling locks and Catholic Mary was held in contempt not only for her presence in Scotland, but for her continuing claim to the Tudor crown of Elizabeth. Mary unwisely married the Scottish Lord Darnley, or Lord Darnley. This created further antagonism both to the English because of his Tudor connections and to the Scots because he was Catholic. The Scots had become Calvinistic in their beliefs and resented Mary's Romanism and the influence of her French court. The people were determined that never again should the Roman Church be allowed to gain and hold political power in their nation. After a series of indiscretions and acts of poor judgment, Mary was forced to abdicate in favor of her infant son, who then became James VI of Scotland. Fleeing the wrath of the Protestant nobles, Mary sought refuge in England. Elizabeth was in a quandary. 
She dared not send Mary back to Scotland, for the Scots might execute their monarch. She was equally afraid to give her sanctuary in England, uh, where Mary was certain to be a rallying point for all manner of malcontents. So Elizabeth was obliged to keep her guest strictly, strictly confined, and thus began a kaleidoscope of intrigues and plots that was to span almost two decades. Eventually, Mary's continued sedition left Elizabeth no other alternative. So Mary was executed in 1587. Enter James VI, Mary's son by Lord Darnley, who had been king of Scotland since six, uh, let's see, sixteen? No, 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 fifteen sixty-eight, under the regency of the Earl of Moray. And of course, interesting enough, he was reared a Protestant. And this is very significant. He was taught, in fact, more significantly, Calvinistic theology. He was taught Greek. He was taught Latin. He was taught Hebrew. Jamie was quite a student. He could discourage on, or excuse me, he could discourse on theological subjects in both English and Latin. When Elizabeth died, she left no heirs, thus ending the house of Tudor. James VI was brought down from Scotland and crowned James I of England. This began the reign of the house of Stuart. The year was 1603. James had led an uneasy life in Scotland and actually looked forward to coming to England. However, he soon found that England, too, had its troubles. The Puritans were in revolt against the established church. One thousand Puritan preachers had gathered together to write a petition. They beseeched His Majesty and Parliament for a change in the established church service. And they also wanted to remove such superstitions as the sign of the cross. Furthermore, the Puritans refused to use the prescribed prayer book because of its corrupted translations. This petition became known in history as the millinery petition because of the thousand signatures affixed. It resulted in the Hampton Court Conference on January the 14th, <coughs> excuse me, 1603, over which King James himself presided. It was during one of the endless debates that the leader of the Puritans, a guy by the name of John Reynolds, said, May your majesty be pleased that the Bible be new translated, such as are extant, not answering to the original. Now immediately Reynolds' requests ran into opposition from Bancroft, the Bishop of London, the bishop claimed that if all who wished were permitted to come up with translations, the country would be swamped with Bibles. So the talks dragged on. Finally, the King of England grew weary, listening to debates in Parliament. So King James spoke. He sided firmly with Reynolds in favor of a new Bible. He admitted that he had never seen a Bible well translated into English. I remember he was quite schooled in all of the the uh, things that man would need to be uh, like Latin, to be uh, polished, and the Greek, and the Hebrew, and the Latin. And he wished that some special pains were taken for a uniform translation. 
done, of course, by the best learned from the both from both universities. That is, the universities that yielded their led were led by the Puritans and the Catholics and the Romans, etc. And of course, uh, the book the, the book that we call the King James was later ratified by a royal authority to be in the whole church and none other. So he was quite definite. The whole church and none other will study from the King James Version. Now James was virtually interested in theology, or vitally interested, better said, and in the languages, as I've noted. He was knowledgeable in the scriptures and in Bible doctrine. Besides, the thought that a new and better translation of the Bible should be published during his run appealed to him tremendously and led, of course, to its adoption. He made but one condition. He would handpick the translators himself. Although the new translation had his complete backing and would eventually be ratified by him, he did not contribute one penny toward its expense. It is said to have cost 3,500 pounds sterling, a considerable sum in those days. On July the 22nd, 1604, the king announced that he had appointed 54 men to make the new translation. How did he select the scholars? His only requirement was that they must be good linguists. Half of them, for example, were Hebrew experts, and the other half experts in Greek. The list included Anglicans and Puritans. Believers and unbelievers. Of those selected, seven men died before the week, before the work was begun. And that included John Reynolds, you remember, who had asked for this translation. Actually, only 47 men worked on what we call today the authorized or King James version of the Bible. It was a perfect time for the translation to be undertaken. For the English language had been greatly improved by men like Shakespeare, Donay, and Spencer. Classical literature had reached its peak. The beauty of the English language of that day and its power of expression are thus preserved for us in the King James Bible. Thus a style of language which would otherwise be long outdated has come down to us fresh and, with the exception of some words, very much to the point. The scholars were divided into six teams. Two teams worked at Oxford, two at Cambridge, and two at Westminster, with the work portioned among them. In each of the groups, the teams were further broken down into Old Testament team and New Testament team. All worked independently of each other. That explains, I think, why the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, translated spirit or Holy Ghost, was translated spirit in one place and ghost in another. It was simply a matter of esprit de corps, school spirit. The Westminster group used ghost and the Oxford group used spirit. <laughs> Each put down what he preferred. One of the teams worked entirely on the Apocrypha, which as you know, is no longer included in the King James Version of the Bible. And we just covered the Apocrypha. The teams translated the Old Testament used the Masoretic text as their source. Now for the Greek, the Texas Receptus, 
the text received by all was used. All in all, the 1611 edition was a good translation from the manuscripts that were then available. The majestic Anglo-Saxon, with its clarity and style, its directness and force, have made the King James Bible an English classic and a model for hundreds of years. Yet its release, the authorized version, turned out to be the most unpopular and universally condemned translation that had ever come off the printing press. It caused the biggest ruckus ever raised over an edition of the Bible in the English-speaking world. Some criticism, I guess, was justified because in the process of printing over 400 printing, 400 topographical, typographical, excuse me, errors were made, which they, of course, had to be corrected. Now, for the most part, however, the criticism was unfounded and biased. The Catholics condemned it for favoring the Protestants. The Armenians fought it because it favored the Calvinists. The Calvinists claimed that it favored Armenianism. The Puritans objected to the church polity and the ritual, as well as the use of such words as bishop, church, ordain, and Easter. In short, everyone who considered himself to be an expert on the subject screamed in protest and began to write pamphlets condemning the new version of the Bible. No one liked it except King James I, and as a fact, he was the only one who mattered. Now for a review of several documents discovered after the writing of the King James Version. Alright, let's begin with Codex Sinaiticus. We owe much of our knowledge of the scriptures to a brilliant 19th century German scholar who spent his life piecing together the original New Testament. At the age of 19, young Count Constantine von Tischendorf amazed his professor with his fluent knowledge of the classical languages and dialects of antiquity. Seven years later, he was appointed lecturer at the University of Leipzig. The following year, he published a new edition of the Greek New Testament. In the spring of 1844, Tischendorf took a trip to the Near East. In the course of his travels, he journeyed to the Sinai Peninsula in search of an old monastery that had been hewn from the rock on the side of Mount Sinai. Since there were no hotels or motels in those days, travelers often spent the night in monasteries. When Tischendorf arrived at the Greek Orthodox Monastery, excuse me, Monastery of St. Catherine's, he was welcomed by the Russian monks. After a pleasant meal and welcomed by one of the monks, Tischendorf presented his letter of introduction. He was then given a grand tour of the grounds and buildings and taken to the library. Tischendorf was disappointed by what he saw. There were dusty parchments piled everywhere. In his bedroom, he saw a large wastebasket filled with what looked like ancient vellums. The basket had been placed near the fireplace, apparently left there to warm his room. Tischendorf was aghast at the thought of anyone burning vellums. Here, if his eyes did not deceive him, he was he he saw something of real value. Quickly, he started going through the papers. Was there more of this kind of stuff around? If so, would they bring them to him? This is how Tischendorf discovered the 129 pages of what is today known as the Codex Sinaiticus, or the Codex Aleph. 
Unhappily, Tishendor did not play poker well. His face lit up in such a way that the monks knew there was something of value in that wastebasket. So he had to tell them. He had to tell of his discovery. A manuscript that possibly dated back to the second century. Would they let him have it? Immediately the attitude of the monks changed. The answer was no. Tichendorf could not take the papers with him, but he would be permitted to review the pages and take a few notes. Tichendorf did more than that. He copied the entire manuscript. In the end, after prolonged bargaining, he was allowed to take 43 of the 129 pages. Almost 14 years would pass before all negotiations for the transfer of this and other priceless documents. England's interest in the manuscript was made known to the Russian government. The monks were shocked. Why sell their precious paper to English heretics? They would rather give them to Russia on loan, of course. Triumphantly and with full backing of Russia, Tichendorf carried off his prize for further study. He published his findings in 1862. Then in 1933, the Russian communists decided they had no need of Bibles, old or new, so they sold Codex Sinaiticus to Great Britain for 100,000 pounds sterling. The crumpled papers were restored and bound in two volumes and placed in the British Museum. Later, they were photostatically reproduced and copies sent to libraries throughout the world. Codex Sinaiticus is still one of the finest and most accurate texts available to us today, and it became the basis of many revisions and corrections of earlier editions of the Bible. Then there was Codex Vaticanus. With Tischendorf's finding, or his findings, a new interest in ancient manuscript was kindled. Someone remembered their French Vatican history and wondered what had become of the many old manuscripts which Napoleon's scholars had discovered in the Vatican when the Pope was captured. Actually, Codex Vaticanus, also known as Codex B, was known to be several years older than Sinaiticus. Vaticanus had probably been transported to the Vatican by Pope Nicholas in 1448. Until the Napoleonic Wars, the manuscript had been hidden from the outside world. In 1809, when Napoleon was exiled, uh, you remember he was exiled uh, from Mar- uh, to northwest of Marseille, and, and so it's said that it took about 50 wagons to transport the Pope's library from the Vatican. Now, with the fall of Napoleon in 1815, the papers were returned to the Vatican before anyone had a chance to examine them carefully. Once more in the Vatican library, they were jealously guarded by the Roman Catholics. Tregellis, another great scholar and and a friend, by the way, of Tischendorf's, decided to investigate the Codex V. Vaticanus in the Vatican library. He applied to the Pope for permission to examine the manuscript and was promptly refused. When explained he was a professor of New Testament literature at Leipzig University, the Pope agreed to let Tregellis study the documents for some six hours. 
That was in the year 1843. Twenty years later, Tischendorf was permitted to re-examine the manuscript. Of course, he had to submit to stringent security measures. He was searched on his way in and on his way out. He could bring no writing materials and was not allowed to take notes. The manuscript was laid out on a large table where he could read no longer than the times established by the chief librarian. Furthermore, there would be guards watching him all the time he was reading. Tichendorf memorized a portion of the text each day. When he returned home, he would sit down and write out that part of scripture earlier memorized. The next day, he would go back to the Vatican to master the next portion of the word. This went on for the summer holidays, and in three months, Tichendorf memorized the entire text of Codex Vaticanus. I suspect this was one of the greatest memory feats ever. Upon his return to Leipzig, Tischendorf published the results of his findings. So close was his text to the original that Post Pius IX in 1859, ordered the Vatican manuscript photograph. In that way, it became public property for the world at large. Codex Vaticanus is still one of our most valuable manuscripts. Now let's take a look at Codex Alexandrinus. A third very interesting manuscript is the Codex Alex- Alexandrinus, D-R-I-N-U-S, This Greek language manuscript had been written in about A.D. 450 in Alexandria, Egypt. Apparently, no one paid any attention to it in the years that followed. In 1621, when Cyril Lucar became the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church, he transferred the manuscript to Constantinople. He had succumbed to the influence of Calvinist teaching, and uh, was corresponding with leading churchmen in the Western world. He seen he very soon learned of England's keen interest in ancient biblical manuscripts. So when an ambassador, the British ambassador, Thomas Rowe, was scheduled to return home from a visit, Lucar sent with him the manuscript as a gift to King Charles I. The beautiful document. Codex Alexandrinus was presented at court in 1627. That was just 15, there, 15 years later after, of course, that was just 15 years after the King James Version of the Bible had been completed, or thereabout. Now what a pity it came so late, because this very ancient manuscript may have helped in the correct translation of the English text. And then we have the very interesting story of Ephraimi, Rescriptus. It is fascinating to learn what happened to some of the great libraries of the past and to trace their disposition throughout history. Here's an example. We know that Cleopatra was very fond of reading and that Mark Anthony was extraordinarily fond of Cleopatra. When he heard of her love for books, Mark Anthony took his army to one of the great libraries of Asia Minor. There he liberated 400,000 volumes of literature and took them down to Egypt as a gift for Cleopatra. An act like this would be tantamount to the Library of Congress being stolen and moved to another country. Many of the great libraries of the ancient world have disappeared 
and we know of their existence only because history has recorded it for us. It is equally interesting to discover that some ancient manuscripts they were thought to have been lost were eventually recovered. One of these is known to us as the Ephraimi Rescriptus or Codex C. This discovery in the 16th century involved Catherine de Medici, who was an ambitious, or she was, I should say, as ambitious as she was clever. Catherine was a member of the colorful Italian family that had risen from obscurity to immense wealth and fame. Over a period of nearly 300 years, the de Medici's had made a name for themselves. And that name ran from the gamut of popes to poisoners to patrons of the arts. A assorted affair of people. All right, they had affiliated themselves with the great houses of Europe through marriage, and Catherine had become the wife of all people, King Henry II of France. She bore him four sons who eventually, through her constant manipulations, became kings. So Catherine de' Medici, she was an avid fan, if somewhat superficial reader, who treasured her books and took them as saying she was quite avid in interest in biblical matters, but she didn't read much. Among her favorites were the sermons of a Syrian theologian, Father Ephraimi. When Catherine died, her books went to the French National Library in Paris. Excuse me, in Paris. They were stacked away and ignored for a very long time, in fact, 245 years to be exact. Now, in 1834, a student of theology decided to write a thesis on the sermons of Father Aframi. He went to the French National Library and asked permission to check out some of the Medici books. He was told that they could not be removed from the premises, since the collection had great historic value. However, he was permitted to examine the books. While he was reading, the light fell on the page in such a way that indentations in the vellum were visible. What appeared to the student, there were as many indentations and inscriptions which got his interest. What was that, he thought? Were they made prior to those of Father Ephraimi and his writing? What actually now had happened was this. It was that in 1553 when Father Ephraimi wanted to record his sermons, paper was very scarce and hard to come by. He found some used vellums in an ancient Syrian monastery and simply erased the writing. True, the indentations were still there, but Father Ephraimi's sermons had been written over them. Without realizing it, Father Ephraimi had erased one of the finest of all biblical manuscripts in order to write his own sermons. Immediately, the alert student became far more interested in what Father Ephraimi had erased than in what he had written. Through the use of chemicals, the original manuscript was restored. This type of manuscript is called a palimpsest, excuse me, which means erased and written over. This particular one became known as Ephraimi Rescriptus. In other words, Ephraimi wrote over it. Since its discovery, the manuscripts 
has been moved, the manuscript singular, has been removed from the Medici stacks of literature and placed where it belongs, in the Bible stack. Now a comment or two about the papyri. Uh, and of course there were special papyri that gets our special interest. The Akirindos manuscripts. Akirindos manuscripts. Archaeological findings have provided us with priceless manuscripts of the past. Oxford University professors Dr. Greenfeld and Dr. Hunt in circa 1900 went to Oxyrinquist in Upper Egypt, west of the Nile. They were searching for ancient manuscripts and trinkets of silver and gold that lay uh, buried in tombs. Now, during the course of their excavations of the one-time provincial capital, that would be Oxyrinquist, they came upon a tremendous hall filled with stuffed, mummified crocodiles. Mummified. Ooh. They were baffled and disappointed. They had expected to find priceless art treasures and jewels in the great chamber, not 2,000 stuffed crocodiles. Possibly on the other side of the chamber they would find what they were looking for. And indeed they did. They recovered many valuable artifacts, which are still in British museums today, estimated to be worth millions of dollars. This find can scarcely be compared, however, to their discover of far greater spiritual value, a discovery which came about quite by accident. Now, to reach the other side of the great chamber, the crocodiles had to be moved out of the way. It was a tedious job, but it paid off handsomely. When one of the native workers stumbled <coughs> and fell, the crocodile he was carrying hit a sharp rock and broke open. Dr. Greenfield's eyes widened in amazement at what he saw. Inside that crocodile were papyri. Upon investigation, they found inside the crocodile's entire libraries. They found entire libraries of the ancient world, not just one, but many different kinds of manuscripts. These included some biblical manuscripts from the second century. The then autograph of the New Testament also dated from the second century. Here also were grammar and etymology books, which led to further discoveries of principles involved in the syntax and grammar of the Koine Greek, which, by the way, we still have today. The Akrusinkras, Akrusinkras, excuse me, papyri can be seen in museums in both Egypt and Britain. It was kind of like the Rosetta Stone for Koine Greek. Now let's look at another famous papyri, the Chester Beatty papyri. After the discovery of the Oxyrinquist, there was increasing excitement over the discovery of papyri and searches for ancient papyri intensified. Countless small hills and sand dunes were dug up and many turned out to be only rubbish sheets of the past, containing bits of slates, vases, broken pottery, and other remnants of a life long ago. The, the Arabs, not to be outdone, soon joined Hunt, carrying off many valuable treasures. So here and there, fragments of biblical writings turned up for sale. 
Among these were an ancient Jewish temple library of the 7th century B.C. discovered at Elphantine, Egypt. The acquisition of and cataloging took the greater part of two years. All right, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, a 15-year-old Bedouin boy followed a goat which had strayed. When he finally threw a pebble into the cleft of a rock, he was startled at the sound of breaking pottery. Later, he returned with a friend to explore the cave. Here they stumbled upon several earthenware jars that contained dirty, musty-smelling parchments. What seemed like an accidental find turned out to be biblical manuscripts antedating the oldest known Old Testament manuscripts of a thousand years. This included the complete book of Isaiah. It would take many years and a small fortune to acquire these scrolls from the Arab black market. And even more, patience to peace them together and decipher there would be no doubt really a genuine find. In the following years, many additional caches caches were locally, including the main library of the Essenes, a Jewish sect. The Dead Sea Scrolls were named after the area in which they had been found. Although the scrolls provided little additional information as to the content of the canon, they did in fact verify that we had earlier discovered was in what we had earlier discovered was in fact accurate and reliable. 